Hello, this is Patrick Ridgell with Transamerica, and I'm here speaking remotely once again with Transamerica Asset Management's Chief Investment Officer, Tom Wald. Hello, Tom. Hello, Patrick. Tom, we're in the final days of the first quarter of the year, and the coronavirus has pretty much engulfed everyone's daily lives. Yes, it has. And, and obviously, it's taken a huge toll on the markets. Yes, that too. And these past couple of weeks have felt particularly tough. Pretty much nothing has been spared in the sell-off. Yes, and what's interesting is that up until about you know the second week of March, I think most people were still viewing COVID nineteen as you know certainly a risk to the markets, but not necessarily a huge risk to the economy. And, and that all changed uh, the week of March 9th when, in addition to rising infection and fatality rates globally, we had a flurry of developments hit the news, and, and it really felt sort of like. They were happening all at once, like at a historic pace. You had companies canceling travel and sending their workers home in mass. You had the NBA and NHL cancel their seasons. March Madness was canceled. Yeah. And um, if you're if you're like me uh, and have kids in college, you saw hundreds of universities cancel their spring semester and send the students home. Mm. President Trump put the immediate travel ban on Europe and that entire continent was escalated to a CDC level three warning status. I mean, this all happened in the span of about two days. Mm -hmm. And it was really overwhelming. And it was at that point, in my opinion, that the playing field shifted from one of market risk to one of economic risk, which are really two very different things. Okay. And since then? Yeah, I think if there's one thing that has resonated and continues to resonate in the markets based on everything I just mentioned, you know, plus the escalation of things like the stay-at-home orders by city and state governments, quarantines, isolations, and social distancing. It, it is just how bad the second quarter economic numbers are going to be. I mean, even up until a yeah. week or so ago, most of the forecasts for upcoming second quarter U.S. GDP growth we're in the range of, hey, you know, maybe down 2%, maybe down 3% or 4%. Then uh, when pencils actually began being put to paper on just how much all of this is probably going to negatively impact the economy in the next three months, well, at that point, the numbers have really gone south. Okay. So let me just say, nobody really knows where this will shake out precisely between now and about mid-year. But I think we could be looking at the worst single quarter of economic contraction since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Mm. We could be looking at year-over-year -year economic contraction between now and June, well into the double digits or even higher. There's actually well, some estimates out there that are calling for negative economic growth in the second quarter of 20% or more. Wow, that bad, really? Yeah, I mean, think about it. COVID-19 has put the country into pretty much a total shutdown mode, you know, albeit hopefully for a relatively short period of time. But still, when you think about this, World War II didn't do that. Neither did the Cuban Missile Crisis or stagflation in the late 1970s or the financial crisis of 2008. So this is truly an instant and immediate shock to the economy, the likes of which few people alive today have ever experienced. Hmm. So where do we go from here? 
Well, I think it's important to say a few things. The first, that this contraction in the economy is, of course, driven by a medical crisis. So if there is a medical solution in the near future, be it successful containment of the virus, perhaps coming from some of the dramatic measures we just mentioned, you know, the stay-at-home mandates, social distancing, following the CDC guidelines, etc., or if the virus mitigates seasonally into the warmer months, or if there is a treatment solution in terms of discovering a pharmaceutical regimen, if any of those come to the forefront in a manner that really stunts the infection rate of the virus, then I think we could have a fast and furious recovery in the economy and the markets. Yeah, makes sense. And and along those lines, after the huge sell-off we've had, I really think the markets are focusing more on the duration or the length of time that this contraction could occur uh, rather than just how bad it gets for one to three month time frame. Okay. So if the worst is over, let's say by the 4th of July, just to pick a date, we could start to see a recovery in both the economy and the markets. I think so. And remember the market is the great discounter of future events. Mm -hmm. So if the economy looks like it's on a path toward recovery uh, in the second half of the year, the markets will likely react before that. Okay, so so the question then is, will the worst be over by summer? You know, Patrick, nobody can really make a hard and fast judgment on that, in my opinion. There's just too many variables and too many moving targets. But I think there are a few things everyone should keep real close tabs on to help us determine if we've seen the worst or not over the next few months. Okay, what are those? Okay. So we have an air pocket coming here in the second quarter, and the question the market will be asking is, will it just be an air pocket or will it get worse? So we have to look at a few things. The first is the trends in the virus itself. A lot of talk about infection rates, fatality rates. But what I think might be the most important trend to watch on a country-by-country basis is the ratio of total recoveries to total reported cases. How many of the known cases have recovered? In China, where COVID-19 first originated in the final months of last year, that ratio is actually now at about 90%. They have reported about 81,000 cases in total, and about 73,000 have now recovered. Yeah, so China's leading the way on this metric. Yes, they were the first in and are looking like they will be the first out. They're basically on the other side of it now. But the problem, of course, is no other countries are even close to that. Iran and South Korea are about 35% recovery rate. Uh, Then we have a big gap down to France, Spain, and Italy at only about 11 or 12%. In the U.S., where we are now just ramping up testing and identifying Mm -hmm. who actually has the virus, Mm -hmm. we're only at about 1% or so. But I do expect that percentage of recoveries to pick up soon. So so here's your optimistic case nobody's really talking about. If China was the first to deal with COVID-19 back in, let's say, November or December of last year, and they have since reached a 90% recovery rate in, let's call it, four months, If other countries can do the same, then the summer is not such an outlandish time frame to say the worst could be over. Again, you know, this would be an optimistic view, of course. And other countries, not like China, 
in terms of how they might be going about curbing the spread. Very good point. China may well have implemented some harsh measures on containment that other countries can cannot. But my, my point even, is, even if we just even if we just get to let's say fifty percent, yes, and other countries get there too. And, and this, of course, is in addition to slowing the spread, or as it is also being called, flattening the curve. Where that's where infection rates slow and recovery rates rise. Uh, yes, that would be the good news regarding the virus itself, and the market would definitely like to see that occur in the next few months. Okay. And then from an economic standpoint? Uh, so, so as we talked about earlier, it's likely that the predominant focus in the next few months will be on how quickly we can recover from this really rough, historically rough second quarter that we are now uh, staring into. <laughs> and I think playing a major role in that will be uh, and this will be front and center of the markets right now, is monetary and fiscal stimulus coming from the federal government. Sure. So let's, let's start with monetary policy. The Fed has done quite a bit in the last month or so. Are they doing enough, in your opinion? I, I really think the Fed is doing as much as they possibly can right now, and, and then some. Uh, in the span of less than two weeks, they've taken the Fed funds rate down to zero, Mm-hmm. They've reinstituted quantitative easing, also known uh, as QE, which mm-hmm. is the practice of large-scale open market asset purchases, which, as most of us will remember, played a major, major role in the market's recovery and moved to new highs after the financial crisis of 2008. You know, mm-hmm. b- Back then, of course, they purchased a total of about $4 trillion in bonds on the open mm-hmm. market. What could it be this time? Uh, okay. This time around... The Fed has committed to open-ended, or in other words, unlimited asset purchases. So just to emphasize the magnitude of what the Fed is doing here, even when they were buying bonds for six years between 2008 and 2014, that $4 trillion I just mentioned in bond purchases, during that time, they were still adhering to monthly schedules. This time, there are no schedules. It's basically whatever it takes. So we got out of the financial crisis and Great Recession of 2008-2009 with a cannon. This time the Fed is preparing like a warhead missile or whatever Mm. the the correct term might be. And in addition, unlike the last QE era, when the Fed only bought treasury bonds and government agency mortgage-backed securities, this time they'll also be buying corporate bonds, municipal bonds, and commercial mortgage-backed securities. And the Fed has also announced they'll be introducing what they call a Main Street lending program to small and mid-sized businesses. So it's really all hands on deck at the Fed, a store on the beach kind of thing. Okay. So fiscal stimulus. The federal government is pumping money directly into the economy. The market is expecting a big effort here, right? Uh, Yes. As we speak, the two parties in the House and Senate are in the final stages you know, we hope the final stages of negotiating out about a $2 trillion fiscal stimulus package to be directly injected into the economy. Bear in mind, $2 trillion represents about 10% of aggregate U.S. GDP. So this $2 trillion or so will likely consist of direct payments, direct cash payments to individuals, uh, also things like delayed tax filing deadlines 
and other forms of tax relief, um, enhanced uh, uh, benefits to the unemployed, uh, mm -hmm. small business loans, and financial assistance to struggling companies within industries such as the airlines, hotels, and other transportation or, or leisure-related sectors of the economy. So this is all quite important as well. Okay. Now, as you said before, you, monetary and fiscal policy doesn't address the root cause of the problem here, which is health-related. That, that's right. But as we enter a time of such large economic shock, as we expect we'll see in the next few months, you know, these measures, both monetary and fiscal, could help us bridge an important gap. And, and when we get through the worst of all this, be it three months, six months, whatever, the impact of these measures could actually be a strong tailwind in the recovery, sort of like how monetary policy was after the last economic downturn in 2008. So what we need to be following is medical data on the virus. And most importantly, in your opinion, the ratio of recoveries to total cases? That, that's right. And the impact on the market of the Fed's rate cuts and bond buying program? Correct. And, and the effects, of course, of fiscal stimulus, uh, perhaps totaling about $2 trillion to help bridge the gap over the next few months? Yes. Okay. Anything else? Well, a, a few final words until next time. Uh, batten down the hatches for the second quarter. It's going okay. to be a rough quarter economically. Yeah. It could be a historically rough quarter economically. Mm. Uh, also, brace for more volatility in the markets. That's not going away anytime soon. Um, remember, it's not about calling a market bottom. It's about identifying long-term entry points for investors. And by at least a few measures, uh, most of them in comparison to long-term interest rates, stocks look like they are at or approaching these types of entry points. Mm -hmm. um, for fixed income portfolios, they could be well positioned in high quality and short on the curve below benchmark durations. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, be prudent, but be opportunistic. The market will quickly discount a recovery once it appears to be in place. Good insights, Tom. Uh, thanks for your time. We look forward to more discussions coming soon. Uh, thanks, Patrick. Assets under management as of March 24th, 2020. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Alternative investment strategies may include long, short, and market-neutral strategies. Bear market strategies, tactical strategies such as debt and or equity, foreign currency trading strategies, global real estate securities, commodities, and other non-traditional investments. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed 
developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. Transamerica Asset Management, TAM, is the asset management business unit of Transamerica. TAM consists of Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor. 251034.